I invite you to turn with you in your Bibles to Psalm 107. Psalm 107. It's a psalm of thanksgiving to the Lord for his great work of deliverance. It's rather a long psalm, but I'm going to read the entire psalm. 43 verses. Psalm 107. As our basis for Lord's Day 10. Hear the word of God with me. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distress and led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and irons, because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down. There was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their chains in pieces. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron in two. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all manner of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them, and delivered them from their destruction. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving, and declare his works with rejoicing. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep, for he commands and raises the stormy wind which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens, they go down again to the depths, their souls melt because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet, and so he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. He turns rivers into a wilderness and the water springs into dry ground, a fruitful land into barrenness for the wickedness of those who dwell in it. He turns a wilderness into pools of water and dry land into water springs, 
There he makes the hungry dwell that they may establish a city for dwelling place and sow fields and plant vineyards that they may yield a fruitful harvest. He also blesses them and they multiply greatly and he does not let their cattle decrease. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, affliction, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and causes them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way. Yet he sets the poor on high, far from affliction, and makes their families like a flock. The righteous see it and rejoice, and all iniquity stops its mouth. Whoever is wise will observe these things, and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord thus far. Would you then also turn with me in the back of your Psalter hymnal to Lord's Day 10? Lord's Day 10, I find that on page 876. Lord's Day 10, question and answer 27 and 28. And while you're looking that up, I remind you that this is your own confession of faith as it is mine. And so question and answer 27 on page 876 comes to us and asks, what do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love, for all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this afternoon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, some time ago, I had the privilege of serving a church as interim pastor during their vacancy. And, and during the 18 months or so that I was with them, it fell to me to bury three members of the congregation. And that in itself was not unusual, especially in a congregation of about 600 souls. What was unusual, however, was, that the, the, was the age of the loved ones we were called upon to bury. They were all relatively young people and the fact that members of the congregation were dying did not trouble us. But we did wrestle with questioning concerning God's wisdom in the matter given the age of those who died. Over the years of my ministry, many times as a pastor, I've sat with family members either in hospital rooms or around the sickbed at home uh, as we wrestled with some significant questions in connection with the providence of God, and that was especially true as we wrestled with the providence of God in these situations, in that congregation. I sat there with a young mother at the bedside of her dying young husband. 
I sat in the hospital with a young man whose young wife was suddenly ripped out of his life by an aneurysm and who now lay unresponsive before us on life support. I sat with a young woman, a young mother, as we watched her husband suffering the ravages of an incurable cancer. And in each of these situations, we wrestled with some things that to our human minds seemed almost unfair. I sat with a young husband whose wife was so suddenly, without warning, ripped out of his heart and his life. I sat with a young wife at her husband's bedside and I watched and I waited while he suffered the debilitating effects of an incurable cancer over a long period of time. I sat with that young mother at the bedside of her dying husband and watched him suffer the effects of chemotherapy during the last days of his life. And in all of our discussions, we wondered about what God was doing in the lives of these young people and their families. We could not help but wonder why God was calling these relatively young people out of our midst and out of the lives and hearts of those who loved them. We wrestle with the fact that the normal way of the Lord was that children would carry their parents to the grave, not the other way around. And to our sin-darkened minds, it made no sense. Oh, and as we talked and as we, and as we searched the scriptures together, we knew that to question God's way with us was illegitimate. But who among us, even here, not, as at, not at one time or another, entertained some similar questions about the wisdom of God? When bad things happen to good people, who of us has not pondered in their heart or perhaps even given expression to the question, why did God allow this? Sometimes our mind went beyond the immediate circumstances and we looked at other incidents in our world incidents where it almost seemed that somehow God wasn't being fair. Somehow it seemed that those who worked so hard to live close to the Lord, somehow it seemed so often that they seemed to suffer so much more in life than did the unbeliever, and somehow it didn't seem right. You know what I mean. Asaph in Psalm 73 wrestled with exactly the same perplexing question. Here he was, striving to live a life of covenant faithfulness and obedience, and yet his life was so very hard for him. His unbelieving neighbors, they all appeared to prosper while he groveled here below and he wrestled with that. It didn't seem right. It didn't seem fair. Read that song perhaps for your evening devotions. And people of God, we can look around us at our world and we can multiply that example a thousand times. For instance, in today's society, it is considered an act of courage and heroism to save a stranded whale. We watch the rescue on our television sets and the world cheers on national television as men and women risks their, risk their lives to free a whale that has been caught in some faraway strange shore. And the rescuers are considered to be heroes. And yet, should the Christian make an attempt to save an unborn child from the slaughterhouses of the abortion clinics, he may well be imprisoned. Be a hero, save a whale. Save a baby, go to jail. We're inclined to ask, why, God? Closer to home, some of you may remember Reverend Alvin Korvermacher of the Elmer United Reformed Church 
tragically getting killed in a traffic accident. And his wife, now his widow, called asking would I conduct his funeral. I confessed that initially my heart and my mind cried out, why God? Why God? Why is it God that this man, filled with a burning desire to faithfully preach the word of God in season and out, why is it that his life is so suddenly snuffed out and that his faithful voice will be silenced while at the same time, at the same time, a man like Robert Schuller was miraculously cured of an illness that is almost always fatal in others and he is allowed to continue to peddle his false gospel of secular humanism. Why, God? Why is it, God, that so often those who obviously seek to promote thy glory and honor, often it's precisely those people who suffer great hardships, are ridiculed, even persecuted, while at the same time those who are presently instruments in Satan's hand to further the kingdom of darkness, they appear to prosper and go on unhampered. Why, God? Oh, as I said, in the hospital rooms with God's covenant children, pondering all these things, we finally and correctly were brought to ultimately conclude that all of the questions about God's way with us, we have no definitive answer. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. As yet we see through a glass dimly and we still walk in this world by faith and not by sight. And along with Article 13 of our Belgian Confession of Faith, we must humbly submit to where we read as to what God does, surpassing our human understanding, we will not curiously inquire into further than our capacity will admit. There are many things we cannot fully understand or explain or comprehend because it has not been revealed to us. But this much we do know. God fulfills in time what he has determined in eternity. The counsel of the Lord stands forever before the foundations of the world. God has determined what shall happen and what shall not happen. Nothing shall come to pass except what God and his sovereign will has determined will come to pass. Isn't that what we confessed together in this Lord's Day when we said that not a hair shall fall from our heads without the will of our Heavenly Father? But we went on and we said, The Lord shall make all things work together for good for those who love him, to those whom he has called according to his purpose. And that means, congregation, that therefore God's covenant people can rejoice in the knowledge and the stability of God's eternal counsel. Not only the end, meaning in our salvation, not only has our salvation been firmly decreed by God, but all things that happen to us in our lives and in the world have been determined and are constantly being directed and controlled by him. He upholds all of creation and <coughs> governs it all in his providence. It's as our children, at least my children, used to sing a song was on the, on the secular hit parade, but there was a song, he's got the whole world. He's got the whole world in his hands. In his hands, he's got you and me, brother. In his hands, he's got you and me, sister. In his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. Or to say it another way, not only is God aware as to what is happening to his children here below, but God is in fact in control of all that happens. That's the summary of God's word in this Lord's day. 
of a Heidelberg Catechism. And so I want to minister God's word to you this afternoon using as my theme, God's fatherly hand. God's fatherly hand. We will see God's hand provides us with strength for today and also it's, it, it provides for us bright hope for tomorrow. So God's fatherly hand. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Congregation, if we were to ask the authors of the catechism, if we were to say to them, tell me now in a nutshell, what must we understand by the providence of God? Tell me now, what is the central theme of this Lord's Day you have written? And the answer would undoubtedly be God's fatherly hand. This imagery of God's hand is given us to help us to better understand the relationship between God, the creator, and us, we, his creatures. What the confession wants us to capture is the biblical truth that it is not some vague, dark, and mysterious force or power that determines our lot in life, but rather encompassing us at all times is a living hand, a loving hand, our Heavenly Father's hand. The Catechism reminds us that not only does God have his hand in all things that happen, but we're also taught to see that we are to see and sometimes we are even to feel his hand in our lives. And congregation, I fear that that is a concept all but lost among many of us over the years. What I mean is this, for example, when we even compare the language of the Bible writers with much of the rhetoric of today, we quickly see how differently the Bible writers and even our forefathers, how differently they saw God's hand in all things all around them. Oh, we will still on an occasion remind ourselves of God's involvement or care. When, for instance, we're confronted with a major calamity or a catastrophe, we will perhaps mumble something about an act of God. Or at a joyous celebration, such as the birth of a child or the commemoration of an anniversary or a New Year's Eve, for instance, we will sometimes speak of God's providential care. But what about in the common everyday things. The things we speak about every day, things such as the weather, rain or drought. The question of what shall we eat? Food and drink. How's your health? Sickness and health. What about our concern for the crops in the fields? Leaf and blade. Or taxes, inflation, recession, depression, fruitful years and lean years, prosperity and poverty. When we compare now how our forefathers spoke about these things to the way that we address them today, we already begin to see how impoverished we have become in failing to take God into account in all of these things. Listen to the language of the psalmist. They did not say, hey, it's thundering, but rather they said, the, the voice of God's thunder is heard in the whirlwind. We do not hear them say, it's raining, but rather, God prepares rain for the earth and he gathers it in his chambers. And they spoke this way, not because they were poets or had a, a better knowledge or language of language or prose. It was not simply a question that they had a better command of the language. No, they spoke this way because they were men who walked in faith and consequently they took God into consideration and saw his hand in all things. 
They were acutely aware that all things from the greatest miracle to the smallest apparently insignificant things came to them from God. In all of their lives, nothing came to them by chance, but they saw all of it coming from Father's hand, be that leaf and blade, sickness and health, prosperity and adversity. All of it came directly from God. That's what the Catechism calls us to remember. All things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from God's fatherly, loving hand. But the Heidelberger also reminds us that occasionally we are to feel God's hand in our life's experiences. Notice that almost all of the examples of our everyday life situations in question and answer 27 are given us in contrasts, rain and drought, fruitful lean years, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty. All things come from God, the ups and the downs in life. The joys and the tears are given us by God. Perhaps it would seem to be easier to praise him when all things are going our way, but what about in times of great trials and tribulations when a job or a career is lost? We face financial hardship. When sickness attacks our frame, when we suffer a debilitating disease that will not be healed, when a spouse or a child is torn out of our hearts and out of our lives through death. In all those kinds of situations, and you can add to them by yourself, do we then also in those circumstances, do we hear God whispering to us, my child, my son, my daughter, Receive also these things from my hand as a token of my love for you. Do we? Really? Or do we say loudly or silently under our breath, Why, God? Why? By nature, man is unable and unwilling to recognize that these difficulties are a great gift of God's grace in order to draw us back unto himself. The unregenerate, the natural man, the non-Christian, he has no knowledge of these things. Oh no, it's only the true child of God that knows that all things come from God's hand and that all things must work together for good. More yet, these things must work together for good for my salvation. And so then when God's children begin to store up treasures on earth, that God often removes or withholds these things in order to teach his children to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But a, a troubling and a perplexing question remains, if, as we confess, all things are under God's control and nothing happens without the will of our Heavenly Father, then what about sin? Is that also under God's providence? Well, the Catechism confesses with the Scripture that the almighty and ever-present power of God upholds and governs all things. And so with the Scriptures, we confess that the Lord works all things according to the counsel of his own free will. That means then that God's government is not only over good, but also over evil. Do not misunderstand me. We need to learn to distinguish carefully here. God never does what is evil, 
either directly or indirectly. He who is spotlessly holy can never be the cause of anything sinful, but the evil which his creatures do and for which they are personally responsible and accountable, even that evil is still subject to the government of God and is in fact guided by him to a certain predetermined end for his glory and for his purpose. God's providence has a purpose. God's providence is, is, is directed to a specific end. Follow this with me. For example, consider with me God's dealing with Jonah. You know the story. God called Jonah to go and preach to a pagan people. No way, Lord. Those special promises are only for Israel. Jonah refused. You know the story. And God then determined to overcome Jonah's resistance, not first of all for Jonah's sake. No, Jonah was only an instrument in the Father's hand. God had determined to use Jonah for the conversion of Nineveh. The miracle of Jonah needs to be seen in that context. God was working out his plan for the people of Nineveh, and Jonah's stubborn, sinful disobedience was unable to frustrate God's predetermined purposes. You know the story. You know the miracle that God caused and used in order that God's plan would be carried out despite Jonah's sinful attempts to frustrate that plan. Another illustration. We're reminded of God's government over sin also in the account of Joseph and his brothers. You know that story as well. Joseph being shamefully abused and beaten by his brothers, even being sold by them, yet understood that also through these sinful circumstances that God was at work and had a greater purpose. Throughout it all, throughout the sin and evil intent of the brothers, God was at work guiding the history of his covenant people. And that would all become clearly evident years later when we hear Joseph witness to his sinful brothers, you thought evil against me, but God meant it for good. Consider also Elimelech and his wife Naomi, who in their sinful disobedience left the land of the promise to return to Moab, all for the sake of bread that perishes. And yet their sinfulness was used by God for God's purpose. When Naomi's son, an Israelite, married Ruth, a Moabitess, the marriage itself was sinful and contrary to God's revealed will. Jews were not to marry Gentiles. And yet again, through that sinful situation, in spite of the sinful disobedience, Ruth was eventually led to Boaz and through her marriage to, her, to him, entered into the line of the Messiah. But, but, but by far, the greatest example of the sin of others working for God's glory and the good of his people was demonstrated on that cross erected on Golgotha. The greatest event that ever happened under the providence of God was seen in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. His crucifixion, people of God, was the greatest sin ever committed under the providence of God. No evil that has ever been committed can be compared to that. And yet even that abomination did not just happen by chance. No, Jesus' suffering of the torments of hell was the fulfillment of God's plan. In the suffering and the death of Christ, he became the Savior.
Savior of the world. In that cross, we have a revelation of human sinfulness and degradation at its worst. And at the same time, we see a demonstration of the love and the providence of God at its most glorious. Nothing in history can equal the crucifixion as a display of human wickedness and depravity. And nothing in history can surpass the cross in divine grace. Sinful man nailed him to the cross. But in the providence of God, that sinful act of man provided the way, the only way for lost and fallen mankind to taste of eternal grace and mercy. But what about our own sin? What about the evil that we, you and I, do? People of God, in the context of this confession, we must be brought to a greater realization of the seriousness of our sin. We have just confessed that all things are given us by God. No, not our sin. It doesn't come from God. But our own dishonoring of God, we do by exercising the very power God has given us with which to glorify him. Our sin is made the more offensive to God when we understand that the power that God gives us with which we were to honor him, we use to dishonor him. And God holds us personally responsible for our sin. And God demands that our sin must be paid for, either by ourselves or by the blood of Christ. And yet, even our sin is subject to the divine government of God and is used by him for the furthering, the advancement of his kingdom. We need to understand that clearly. And now finally, after having taught us all of this, the catechism finally asks, how does that knowledge help us? The question now again becomes very personal. It's not simply a matter of knowing or memorizing the right question and answers. It's a question of how does all of this knowledge help or profit you? How does this knowledge benefit you? We must do something with this knowledge. In other words, the confession wants us to know that a proper understanding of God's providence must profit us for our daily living. How does this knowledge of the providence of God benefit you? People of God, remember once again that the catechism is a personal confession of a born-again covenant child of God. And the answer given in response by the Christian, you will notice, is threefold. It speaks of patience, thankfulness, and confidence. And we confess that these are the things afforded us as a result of the knowledge of God's providence. How does the knowledge of God's providence benefit you? Well, because of God's providence, says the child of God jubilantly, because of God's providence, I have patience, thankfulness, and confidence. Our answer begins with patience. Not simply patience, but patience when things go against us. It's not necessarily easier to be patient in adversity than it is to be thankful in prosperity, but it does often seem that adversity is the lot of the Christian. Isn't that exactly 
the question that Asaph wrestled with in Psalm 73? Does it not often appear that the lot of the Christian is constant, is one of constant disappointment and frustration, while at the same time our unbelieving neighbors would seem to prosper? And yet, even in these difficult times, God calls on his children to patiently look to him. And again, here we need to distinguish. Patience is not the same as indifference. It's not a question of simple stoic resignation. It's not a matter of resigning ourselves to the fact that these circumstances are our lot in life and there's nothing I can do about it. No. Christian patience in adversity is a recognition that the things are the way they are, not because of chance or circumstances, but that things are the way they are because that's the way God wants it for me. In other words, the Christian has learned to say that also these difficult times are given me by God as part of his plan for my good. People of God, we must understand that much material gain oftentimes brings us further from God while adversity usually serves to draw God's children to their knees and to redirect their dependence towards God. All things happen. Even these present trials in our life are part of God's divine eternal decree, reminding us of his constant involvement in our lives and that also these present tears are part of God's plan for our sanctification. In all these things, we still confess that God is good, for this God is my God, says the Christian, and I consider also these times of adversity a small price to pay for that pearl of great price that I have found by God's grace in his son, Jesus Christ. That's Christian patience. Only then, by the grace of God, do our souls learn to wait patiently upon the Lord. And through that kind of patience, hear me well, through that kind of patience, our afflictions become sweet to us, resting in the knowledge that God has purposely planned these things for us. Then Paul's lesson is practiced and learned by us to be patient in tribulation. Then we may also patiently await the time when all our earthly sufferings will cease and we shall be brought into eternal glory. Next, the Catechism calls us to be thankful when things go well. That seems easy, doesn't it? It would appear on the surface that thankfulness in prosperity is much easier to practice than patience in adversity, but such an attitude would indicate that we have not rightly understood what it means to express true thankfulness to God. Remember that the law of God was given us to observe and to obey as an expression of gratitude, thankfulness to God for what he has already done for us in Christ. True thankfulness is conversion, a daily dying off of ourselves. It is to more and more put off the old nature and more and more put on the new. It's a hating of sin more and more and a fleeing from it. It is to desire more and more to do the good that God requires of us. It is to seek his will, to know his will, to do his will. That is thankfulness. 
It's not easier to be thankful in prosperity than it is to be patient in adversity. Both are impossible for the natural man. However, both are also the fruits of the Spirit in the regenerated heart of the child of God. And both must be evidence in his daily walk. The final fruit taught us in this Lord's Day is confidence. A bright hope for tomorrow. Confidence in what? Confidence in that, that God will provide all things necessary for body and soul. Confidence that after the rain the sun will shine again. Yes, that too is implied and promised. However, the catechism here quotes from Romans 8. Confident that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. How does the knowledge of God's providence benefit you? Because I believe on God's providence. Therefore, I know that the gates of hell, nor Satan himself, can never snatch me out of his hand. Why? Because God fulfills in time what he has determined in eternity. People of God, if you're taking notes this afternoon, write that down. If you're not taking notes, then let that truth sink deeply into your soul. If you take nothing else with you from God's word this afternoon, take at least this much with you. God fulfills in time what he has determined in eternity. Commit that biblical truth to your memory. God fulfills in time what he has determined in eternity. In other words, all things, including the eternal destiny of his covenant people, has been determined by him before the foundations of the world were laid, and neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can frustrate or alter that eternal decree of God. All of this is taught us in the doctrine of the providence of God. My precious, precious saints of God gathered with me here in Bowmanville this afternoon. What a tremendous comfort this doctrine affords us. We're not full of fear about the future, are we? We're not even afraid to die, are we? How could that be? All things are in Father's hand. Nothing, 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 not even death can separate us from his love. All creatures are so in his hand that without him they can neither move nor be moved. In fact, our enemies are God's enemies. God is not only in control of your life, but he's also in control of those who would seek to harm or injure you. They too are constrained by the providence of God. Of what then shall we be afraid? If God is for us, who can be against us? Mighty people, God, such trust in our Father provides the peace that passes all understanding. What the future brings, we don't know. We do not know what the future holds, but we do know who holds the future. Perhaps our future will bring prosperity. Perhaps adversity will be our lot. We don't know. It's enough to know that God is with us and in him our adversity itself becomes prosperity. For if God is with us, who can be against us? He who has not spared his own son, shall he not give us all things in him? In such a frame of mind, the Christian will no longer fret in difficult circumstances of life. Instead, 
he will grow in the love and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and his Father God, who has made us and who has planned and accomplished our salvation. And in that conviction, with that conviction in his heart, the Christian faces every day joyfully, confidently, anticipating eternal glory. May God grant us all true happiness through the knowledge that for now and forever, in life and in death, we are not our own, but we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Pardon for sin, a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine, with ten thousand beside. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord.